Good evening, everybody. Thank you all again for coming to this second night of our mission. Why don't we go ahead and begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Stay our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, again, thank you all for being here tonight. Um, I'm going to begin by kind of giving a, a brief recap of what we talked about last night. Sort of trying to address and understand the importance of the Holy Mass by looking at it through the lens of the crisis of Eucharistic belief and Sunday Mass attendance. And my argument that I tried to make last night was that the lack of adequate Mass attendance is actually a symptom of a deeper problem, what I call the Sabbath sickness. That is culture, and as Christians and as Catholics, we, we suffer from restlessness. We don't know how to properly celebrate the Sabbath. And so my exhortation was to sort of reclaim the Lord's day. And so if we did that, we would hopefully reclaim worship. Well, what I want to do is kind of look at, again, another way of addressing the connection of Sabbath and worship, but from a little different perspective. And actually, the whole idea from this talk came from a book or a section of a book that I recently read by Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, of course, who became Pope Benedict XVI. There's actually some workshops, lectures that he gave in 1985 that had just recently been translated into English. The book is fantastic. It's called The Divine Project, basically his reflections on creation and scripture. So I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to be externally processing. I wrote my notes down. I have an idea of what I want to say in here, but I am potentially afraid that it's going to be a little too complicated or convoluted. If it's not, well, then that's wonderful. If it is, it's Lent, and you can offer it up. I mean, you can walk out the door. It doesn't really matter to me. But hopefully, we're going to get to a point where I can explain myself well. So I'm just giving you a little caveat right at the beginning. So, one of the things that he talks about in this book is something called, or I'm going to label, the rhythm of the seven. Rhythm of the seven. And he basically notes that in the Bible, we see a sort of a focus on certain numbers that are important, become symbolic. Three, ten, and seven. So, he notices it because there are seven days of creation. And so he brings up the point in looking at these seven days of creation of how maybe quite possibly seven days of creation came from the seven phases of the moon or other types of things. But basically, that Israel, like other sort of primitive cultures, 
back in the earliest days of these cultures were very attuned to the world around them. Very attuned to the world around them. Cosmos, the rhythms of the heavens, the seasons of nature. Why? Well, because they were sort of there in the middle of all of it, and they were able to perceive certain connections and rhythms, and they lived in sync with these rhythms, including, let's say, the rhythms of human life, of birth, of death, uh, marriage, etc. And so Ratzinger says that human existence is perpetually open to the cosmos, to the world around us, to the, to the, to the things and the rhythms of creation. And so he says the whole universe is locked together in a rhythmic cycle from which we derive the rhythm of our own lives. And so, realizing that Israel, like these other cultures, recognized that and lived it, and it was a very, very good thing. And so this number seven becomes important because it's the seven days of creation, but he notices, though, for the scriptures, those days of creation are ordered towards something. They're ordered towards the Sabbath. And so he argues that the Sabbath, the seventh day where God rested, is the ultimate goal or the ultimate destiny of creation. The rhythm of the seven, the rhythm of all these days, the rhythm of creation, of life, all points to the holy day, the Sabbath. And as we talked about last night, while indeed the Sabbath is about rest, More importantly, it's about the worship of God. And so, he says, creation itself is structured in such a way that it is oriented to the hour of worship. Creation was done so there would be a space for worship. It is wholly fulfilled, serves its purpose when it is a house of worship, so to speak, when it is lived with a view to worship. Creation exists for the sake of the Sabbath, it exists for the sake of the covenant, and it exists for the shape of worship. The true center, the power that moves and shapes from within the rhythm of the stars and our lives is worship. So that's the key. We can notice the rhythm of our lives, we can notice the rhythm of creation, we can be so attuned to the stars and the moon and the sun and to the seasons, but we've got to all understand they are ordered towards worshiping God. In fact, if you do sort of a deep dive of Genesis 2, you're going to see that the Garden of Eden is actually structured as a temple, with the waters flowing from it like the Jewish temple. And Adam is there as the priest, as the gardener. We're going to see this importance of gardener in a little bit later on. And so, all of creation was ordered towards worship, which meant that the Jews understood, as did all of these other cultures, although, as we'll see, sometimes they got it a little bit wrong, that there was a deep sense of the sacred in creation. 
that we can look at the world, we can look at the cosmos, the beauty of the rhythms of the seasons of human life and perceive God. Now, for the, the pagans, unlike the Jews, they got it confused. Sometimes they saw that the moons and the stars and the sun were God themselves. There was the God of life, the God of river, the goddesses of love, and so they'd worship creation. That wasn't the way it was supposed to be. And so, that's a sort of the inspiration of the first creation account, to say, no, 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 God is above creation. These things, the world, are not gods. They are simply creatures. And even more so, there's an order and a structure to it. Creation and the rhythms of creation are reasonable, and they are signs of the divine intellect, the divine logo. Logos, I'm sorry, the divine word or the divine reason. So while it may have been expressed differently in different primitive cultures, there's still something in common. Sense of the sacred and creation and the fact that creation and the rhythms of the cosmos and the heavens are ordered towards worship. It's here, and getting involved in these rhythms that man can connect with God. The Jews recognized this, but so did primitive cultures. It's what Ratzinger is going to call a primordial knowledge for people who are connected to the world or connected to the earth, who are connected to the rhythms of life. Listen to what he has to say. Find that word right here. Just going to skip ahead. The way in which the world's peoples shared in this primordial knowledge, that when it comes down to it, This knowledge is present in all cultures, even if it is often rather distorted. The creation accounts in every culture in which they are found ultimately prove to offer a rationale for religious worship or cult. He uses the word cult to say that the world exists for cult for the glorification of God mentioned this a little bit at the end of last night, we're going to come back to this word cult. I was an English major, I love etymologies, so we're going to take some time to look at this world. So basically, what Ratzinger is trying to say is that there is a connection between worship, cult, and the creation of the world, of cosmos, of the rhythms of life. And it's something that primitive cultures understood and that we have lost. We've lost that sense of culture. We've lost that sense of being in tune with the rhythms. So before we get into that, I want to spend some time going back to this etymology, and this is where maybe it's going to get a little bit of confusing. We use the word in English, worship. We worship God. We talked about how the Sabbath is made for worship. And the root word is the Old English worth. It translates as worth to here, basically meaning something that is valuable. But in the language that Ratzinger is writing in, that word is not worship, but cult or cult. 
K-U-L-T. Worship, in a certain sense, doesn't translate as well as cult does. Now, when we use the word cult, as I said last night, we've got to shake off some of these negative connotations of, like, Jim Jones and, you know, Jamestown and Guyana. The simple definition of cult is basically a system of religious veneration and devotion directed toward a particular figure or object. It's worship. Cult and worship are synonymous. But what's the etymology of the word cult? It comes from the Latin colere, which means to cultivate. The Latin words cultus and cultura both derive from it, and they both basically mean the same thing. Care, labor, cultivation, as in the land, culture, but also worship and reverence. Here's the connection, though, and here's the point, that there is a connection between worship and cult and the world and the land which we cultivate. Somehow this idea of cultivation of the land and the seasons and the rhythms that are inherent in the world are connected not only etymologically, but also in the view of these primitive cultures and also within Christianity with worship, cult, and cultivation are intimately connected. Land and worship. Why is this important? We're going to go back to Exodus. We talked about Exodus last night. Remember at the beginning, Yahweh wanted Moses to go talk to Pharaoh, to say, Pharaoh, we want, to, we want a little vacance here. We want to go out in the desert for three days to worship. I'm tired of making all these bricks. Of course, as we know, the Pharaoh was going to have none of it. And he refused and gave Israel more work. And so what did Israel do? They did what they did a lot of the times of the Old Testament. They complained. They groaned to God. Why are we suffering like this? And so what happened is, if you pay attention to the book of Exodus, the Lord still wanted to give them a vacation, but the terms had changed a little bit. Terms had changed a little bit. So let me read for you from Exodus chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Now notice, it's no longer you're going on a three-day vacation, but now you're going to be totally set free to worship me, but that worship is going to be connected to land. 
that you were going to inhabit. Now, granted, you're going to kill everybody there first. That's the whole other story of Joshua. But you're going to be there, and you're going to cultivate the land. It is going to be your land. It's going to belong to you as a promise and a connection of my covenant. And you are going to offer me worship there. Cult and cultivation. Worship and land. And this all brings me back to the original topic of our mission. Reasons gave for the lack of the fulfillment of Sunday obligation because people are too busy. And we saw that indeed people need to learn to rest, to have a Sabbath. But I think along with that, there's another component. And this is my second thesis, the topic of today's talk. As a culture or as a society that has gradually become disconnected from the land, from the rhythms of the cosmos, from the world around us, not recognizing it as a gift and not in tune with creation, we are less likely to offer proper worship. Because we don't cultivate or connected to the world, we are going to have a very hard time to worship. The lack of cultivation leads to a lack of cult, a lack of worship. And Ratzinger is going to be very clear in the same conference I was talking to you about. Primeval people could worship because of a connection to the land, to the cosmos, and all of the rhythms of the world which we've lost, which we've lost for a number of different reasons. We're out of sync. We're not grounded to the creation and the cosmos and the meaning of the world around us. Now, I'm not saying that we should go be pagans. I'm not saying that we should give up our cars and our television and all that. Instead, we need to find balance. And if we can find balance and a connection to these rhythms that are part of our human nature, the seasons of life, the seasons of existence, and maybe we can get back to proper worship. So I want to explore some of the reasons why, and you're probably not going to be surprised when I mention some of them, why we're out of touch with the rhythms of creation. I'm going to get into those a little bit. So is everybody with me so far? I'm talking about it. We're disconnected from the world. We're disconnected from the sacred rhythms. I know I sound like a hippie here, but it's not what I'm trying to do. The main reason is this, because unlike primitive cultures, unlike basically every culture society except for about 170 years ago, when it began to really, really start, we are a society that is governed by technology and a technological way of looking at the world. Particularly since the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution, there have been so many advances. And these have been good things. But we can have a mission in this church at 6 o'clock at night in the winter because we have electricity, because we have a microphone. Otherwise, y'all could also could come here in your cars. Otherwise, you'd be stuck at home. They'd be, Philip would be here. I'd be talking to him. But that's the reality. 
these things are good, but they've changed life, and they changed the rhythms of life, and they changed them so fast. Not only in the way we live, but in the way that we look at the world. Everything needs to be facts and figures. We want to control things. And we trust in it. We trust in our science and our computers and our devices and our medicine and all of these things are good, but what's happened is we've become to distrust spiritual knowledge or to look down on those civilizations from before. They were primitive. They didn't understand science, the technology. They were too far behind. And so this is what Ratzinger has to say. The danger confronting those of us who live in technological civilizations is that we have cut ourselves off from the primordial knowledge, which has always been present and even now is still capable of holding things together. This primordial knowledge of God's presence and the rhythms and the cycles and the seasons and to see him working in the world around us. While it no longer says anything to us, who consider a certain only so-called scientific knowledge, the kind derived from developments in the technical sciences, we can no longer be sure of anything we get from primeval human beings. Our problem is that we misunderstand the nature of science, thinking that we know better. So what do we normally think of these primeval human beings? Well, they're backwards. They, they, they're worshiping trees. This sense of the sacred, this doesn't exist. One of the great sort of philosophers in the past recent years, Charles Taylor, talks about the difference between the buffered self and the porous self. The porous self is man and woman before the technological age. Porous, where we, we like, we're at one with creation, and we saw sometimes. The spiritual elements, sometimes a little bit too much, seeing little fairies and gnomes, but we saw a spiritual element. We were connected with the world around us, but now it's a buffered self. Oh, we have technology, we have our own paradigm, we stand above and beyond creation. As we'll see, we don't even consider ourselves part of the ecology. We're separate, and we can do what we want, when we want. And one of the ways that you see this is if you, I like science fiction. And I remember watching, it was a Star Trek episode, and we're going to get more into that a little bit later on, even though I prefer Star Wars to Star Trek, that here you are in the future, everything is spaceships and technology, and quite often they would land on this very primitive planet where some shaman would, would rule this very primeval people, and he would manipulate and control them and make them worship false god. And they would have to, to teach them a lesson. You primeval people, you stupid people. Technology will save you, not these gods. And while indeed, probably shouldn't have been worshipping these false gods, there was a bit of confusion, but at least they saw the supernatural. At least they saw a spiritual principle and an order and a structure in the world around them. I'm not trying to say that technology is bad. It's produced many great things. I can record this talk because of it. But over time, what happens is we begin trusting so much in our technology and our devices, we don't trust in God as much. We begin seeing the world from a very technical way, and it changes the way we understand things, 
and it cuts us off from that primeval connection. And we've seen the rise of what we call the technocratic paradigm. Pope Francis has talked about this, and let me explain it. He says this paradigm or this way of looking at reality exalts the concept of a subject who, using logical and rational procedures, progressively approaches and gains control over an external object. This idea of control is important. The subject makes every effort to establish the scientific and experimental method, which is itself already a technique of possession, mastery, and transformation. And so what happens is it becomes a way of looking at the world, no longer in touch with the rhythms or trying to see God present, but desiring to control, to dominate, to understand. And so it puts us at a disconnect with the world and also gives us a great temptation to be like God. God doesn't exist. There's no spirit in the world. We're like God. We will control it. We will make nature and the world bend to our will. And all of these religious people, they're foolish. They need to come up to date. And so it does. It changes the way, even for believers who are trying to believe, the way we approach and we look at nature and creation and the cosmos and reality. It ultimately becomes a worldview devoid of God, devoid of meaning. And the only meaning is the meaning that we put onto it, that we derive from it. And so there are three ways that I see this technocratic mentality sort of affects what we're trying to talk about today. The first and most important is it gives us the desire for and the illusion of control. We know that man has been given dominion over creation in the book of Genesis. But now we dominate creation. Reality is no longer there. It is a mystery to be understood, to be perceived, but some matter, biological matter that is there to be controlled, mastered, and transformed. This goes back to the scientific revolution, to the Enlightenment and Francis Bacon. Even our knowledge becomes purely utilitarian. We don't wonder about the deep mysteries of the world or existence. Our knowledge must be practical. Engineering, science, biology, all good things with the liberal arts and beauty and truth, that's all dismissed. All dismissed, including religion. Again, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not trying to say that we should just go back to eating food we produced. Engineering, health, communication, all these advances are good, but we often have to check our interior disposition to see if we're not trying to exert control like God's, instead of perceiving and entering in to the mystery of the rhythms of creation. And so what happens, though, is that when we take this technocratic paradigm and we see the world around us not as a gift to be received or a mystery to be celebrated, but material to be dominated, we end up destroying and hurting our environment very legitimate ecological concerns. 
and often at the hands of exploiting the poor. One of the things that I read recently, uh, and I suggest you reading it, it was mind-blowing. We all have our, look at this, rechargeable phone, rechargeable iPad. Some of you may drive a Tesla or electric car. It all depends on batteries that are rechargeable. Where do they come from? We We just have them. We don't think about it. Well, it takes a very particular heavy earth mineral called cobalt to make it. And it just so happens to be that 80% of the best cobalt is located in one region of one country, the Congo, where hundreds of thousands, if not millions, are basically in slavery, digging out heterogenite from the ground and living on a dollar a day and being exploited so that we can have our little things here. That's called dominion. That's called control. I encourage you to read the book called Cobalt Red. Very difficult to get through. As you realize, man, if you know anything about the heart of darkness and King Leopold and the Belgians and, and what happened to the Congo, we've been treating these people like garbage for 150 years. I'm going to recognize it. Look at my little soapbox on that because I read the book, but goodness gracious. But we also want to control ourselves. Genetic engineering, advances in biotech, the way we understand our body, not as a sacrament of the person, but as pure biological material. In fact, we believe that all of life can be mastered by technology and technique. As long as I have the right technique, I can control the economy, I can control the weather, I can control my marriage, I can control other people. Very, very bad. And of course, what is most of this driven by? And this is a whole separate topic. It's driven the same thing that we talked about, our distractions and our phone, the attention economy. It's driven by profit. People are making money off of it, making money off of us, off into the hands of the poor and the exploited. The second thing is, and I think this is something very interesting, which I've been thinking about for a number of years, is that because particularly of our devices, and our technology, reality, instead of becoming something that we can connect to, we can't connect to it, we can't connect to the rhythms because it's all mediated. This comes from a book I read by a guy named Thomas Dezingatita called Mediated. Basically, we very rarely approach nature or the world as it is. There's always our little paradigm of how things work, mathematical or technical, always analyzing, trying to understand or dominate, never just receiving, never just contemplating the beauty. But more importantly, and particularly since he wrote the book 15 years ago, it's our reality is mediated through devices. There's another book written a couple of years ago called The Three Screens. I think the three three screens that, that govern our world, that mediate our existence. First one is the television screen. You're not in touch with reality. You're looking at a, at a picture of the forest on your TV. You're watching a documentary. You're not actually there. It's not bad, but it's a mediated reality. You're not actually at the Sistine Chapel. You don't know what it smells like. It's been mediated to you. The big mediator is the phone. How many of you ever been to like the Grand Canyon or nature and you see the tour bus comes out? Everybody is just with their phones 
You're taking pictures or videos. They're never looking at it. It's mediated through a screen. Ah, as we're going to see, our communication, a lot of reality is mediated through the screen. There's also, I'm sorry, again, we're going to see how it mediates our relationships, but actually it's the third screen that I've thought the most about. Anybody want to guess what that third screen that mediates, that acts as a buffer to our contact with the reality is? It's the windshield. The windshield of your car. Your car, which enables you to get from point A to point B in such fast time that people even 100 years ago couldn't believe it. Have anybody here drove from Metairie to come over here? Imagine 100 years ago, you couldn't have done it. Because of that screen, time and space have collapsed. That's one of Zygmunt Bauman's points from liquid modernity. We're mobile, we're travel. We're also always in a hurry because we can get point A to point B very quickly. I could actually get on a plane tonight and wake up in Europe. Imagine, we've never been able to do that before, how that changes reality. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but because we're always in a hurry, we're not grounded in where we are. We often don't have a home. We live because of that windshield, sort of nomadic existence. But ultimately, and probably most significantly, as we allow this technocratic paradigm to take over, I'm not talking about being dependent on our, our devices. That's something different. But it's a way of viewing the world. And we've become to rely so much on the scientific worldview that the secular dies, that the spiritual dies away. There's no metaphysical, there's no spiritual, there's no angel, there's no God. Everything is pure matter. Everything is what I see and what I touch. When you die, you go into the ground. It's what we call the nihilistic worldview. The only meaning that's there is meaning that we put onto it. And so it's very hard for us if we're constantly dependent on our science and our technology, again, which is not a bad thing. It becomes very difficult for us to perceive God of the sacred. But what it really does, what it really does, it cuts us off from genuine contact with the earth, that we cultivate with the cosmos, with the seasons, with the lightness and the darkness and the rhythms around us that God has put in that primitive cultures have been able to look at and perceive meaning in. The deeper connection with the world around us. We are disconnected. Again, think of it. Just 100 years ago, you could have done this. We'd have candles lighting up this church. If we weren't living in Louisiana, it'd be freezing cold. Once the darkness hit, boom, it was done. But now we have so much light, there's light pollution. It throws us off of our rhythms. People didn't stay up until midnight, binge-watching television. It was cold, it was dark, they went to sleep. They probably That's why we're so tired. We don't get enough sleep because we're so off. Even the way we approach creation, there's very little wonder. Very little wonder at creation. We're so busy with work. We're so busy with our phones. We're so busy with all of our worries. And even our work so often today is not work with our hands. And I'm super guilty of it. I can't build anything. 
I used to be able to change the oil in the car until they figured out a way that you couldn't change the oil in your car and you had to pay $100 for it over at the dealership. But there's just so little connection with these things, particularly with the land or work. Most often, young people want to move to the cities, and cities aren't bad. No one wants to farm anymore. We've handed over a lot of the production of our clothes and our homes and our, our farming to industry. It's a great book called Shopcraft is Soulcraft, about how these vocational things are really important. That's fascinating work. Maybe you want to go build something with wood, but I don't have the time to do it because I'm having to write all these talks on my computer. Granted, I'm not saying we need intellectual life. It's there, but there's got to be a balance. Got to quote Wendell Berry again, talked about him last night, that great American agrarian and philosopher. He has an essay called Nature as Measure. And he said because of the rise of technology and industrial farming, the land and our connection to it has died, and the communities around it have died. There's no longer, when it comes to our food, our production, a measure of nature, what's good for the land, what's good for the communities, but a measure of productivity. What's going to be more productive? How are we going to get the most out of it? And we're going to apply our, our techniques and our, 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 our ways of governing the land to do so. Granted, you get a lot more produce and maybe you can help people better. But the truth is, most of the food that we eat comes from these big industrial farms. Most of us don't even know what a banana or an apple really tastes like. I remember that. Going to Washington State one time and going to an apple orchard and eating an apple and saying, whoa, this is what an apple really tastes like. Or if you, if you get some really nice people, they can get you some of those Harry and David pears for Christmas. Whoa! The first time I bit into it, it's like the pear juice running down my face. This is what a pear is supposed to taste like. But because, of course, and this is the greater social issue because it's so small, you got to pay a lot for it. It's cheaper to get your, 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 your bag of apples over at Walmart, but they don't taste like apples. They're not grown in the land. And so farming, he says, is the, the measure of nature, which is to say the nature of the particular place where the farm is means the farmers must tend their farms they know and love, farms small enough to know and love, using tools and methods that they know and love, and the company of neighbors they know and love. And granted, farming is hard work. I know some farmers. I would not want to be a farmer. And if I did, I'd like a nice big implement so I wouldn't have to go out there and doing the back-breaking work. A lot of the technology is good. I'd prefer to work in a vineyard, in Napa Valley. That's what I would prefer to do, but I'm a priest, so I can't do that. But ultimately, in a certain sense, because of all this and our disconnected from the world around us and from the land and from the rhythms, because everything is so artificial, we've lost our placeness, our sense of being from a certain place. This idea came from a book I read and loved a couple of years ago called Dedicated by a guy named Pete Davis. And he starts to makes his cultural diagnosis and talks about liquid modernity and how everything is so fluid and post this and post that. But he calls it an age of infinite browsing. You know, you can get on the internet and you're just browsing. You get on the TV and you're just browsing. You never commit to anything. Connected to technology, but as a result, as a generation, we've lost the ability to commit. 
to schedules, to people, to places. This is my home. This is my neighborhood. We've lost a sense of placeness and a dedication to land and community. He calls it the flood, the flood of liquid modernity that washes all these solid things away. We don't know where we are. We don't know who we are. Contrast it with something a little bit later, which we're going to get to. And so we're out of rhythm. We don't know where we are. We're lost in the cosmos, as Walker Percy says. But here's the key. This is what I'm trying to drive into rather than just complaining about how bad things seem to be. It does affect our worship. And if we are not connected, if we don't know how to cultivate, if we don't understand the rhythms of the season and the cosmos and the land, we don't have proper cult. We don't have proper worship, which is a real question. Can proper worship exist in this technological culture? To go back to, to the science fiction, the Star Trek, you see on these spaceships or these movies that you watch, Star Wars is somewhat of an anomaly, and supposedly some of Ray Bradbury's writing is too. But you've got engineers, you've got doctors, you've got soldiers, you don't have priests. You don't have sacred people. There's not a chapel that you can you can project yourself to. Nope, just a, a spaceship flying through the world, all artificial. You, you may have your virtual reality room where you can go, remember Captain Kirk would go there and pretend that he was in some other realm. That's all fake, virtual reality. So what does worship look like in our society? And I think it begins to die off. I think there's a connection here. Because particularly if you go to countries that don't have all the technological advances, oh boy, oh boy, the faith is a lot stronger there. The primitive people. I have a friend of mine who is a sister and a missionary in Tanzania. Every year, like a thousand people convert. They baptize. I saw a picture of a thousand people getting baptized. And there's the, the, the mass is this wonderful celebration. They got like 50 girls starting to be sisters. And this is what it's like often. There's still that connection with the land. People are farmers. But in our culture, worship is unnecessary. Wow, there's even no God. We have control over everything. Or our, our prayer and our worship is reduced to technique. Maybe it's a desire to control God. It's no longer a personal encounter. We can't really rest. We can't really worship. But of course, we are creatures that need ritual. We need worship. And if we're not going to have legitimate worship, we're going to make it. So what is our worship today? Well, you can say there are all kinds of different rites that we come up with. There's a book actually just published called Strange Rites that talks about all the weird ways that we look for the secular, for the sacred in a secular world. But where, where, where is our right? Where is our worship? Well, Sabbath, for most people in the United States, is still on Sunday. And it starts about noon at kickoff. We spin a billion dollars on a stadium that is used basically eight times a year. I'm not, again, I love football. I like the Saints. 
I think they're making a big mistake getting Derek Carr because he is washed up. I don't see why they keep bringing these old has-been quarterbacks and thinking they're going to be the savior. Look, I care. I do. But it's not the end-all, be-all. And so the new temple is the stadium. Here's something fun I always like to talk about. Oh, this guy's a big Saints fan. A big Saints fan. Well, the word fan comes from the Latin word. Well, the, the word fan is fanatic. Latin word fanum, which means temple. The fanum. I'm the fanatic. I'm going to worship at the temple, the church, at, at, the, at my new church, at the stadium. And guess what? As a ritual, I'm going I'm to dress a certain way. I have my certain food I eat. I stand up for the wave. I'm watching the liturgy. It's not boring. Even though it goes on for three and a half hours, it's not boring. I can't hear anything that's going on. There's all kinds of excitement. I'm with a bunch of other people. But boy, oh boy, if you go to Mass every day, you're a fanatic. It's the same word. Why are you bad if you're a church fanatic, a religious fanatic, but you're good if you're a saints fanatic? I see people who die and, and they have, like, their, their, their coffin is, you know, spray-painted LSU, the LSU Tigers. And they never even went to LSU. They never went to college. What's up with that? They went to Walmart. They bought them a shirt over there. Look, I was chaplain at UL Lafayette, so sorry, y'all. I got, I got to pull for the Raging Cajuns. But that's the reality. Whether it be the Saints or whatever sports team, that's become our new worship. We're going to find a way because we want something sacred. We want order in our chaotic world. Because if you remove it, there's no sacred. And you look around, it's despair takes over. So we've got to find a way to impose order. We have to find a way to amuse ourselves. Because as humans, we need order. We need structure. And before our technological culture, we had it. We could see the natural law. We could see God's working in the cosmos. But now we've got to create it for ourselves. We've got to bring meaning to ourselves. So how do we find genuine solutions? without rejecting technology, without seeming like old, stodgy people. How do we do it? I want to offer a few solutions, and then I'm, I'm coming to the real point of the end. I'm going somewhere here. Are we still with me? I know I've been kind of all over the place, but I'm trying to be funny. So you LSU fans probably didn't think that was funny, but make an Alabama joke, but I'm not going to do that. What are the solutions? There's like I offered solutions. Again, maybe these are practical, not super practical. We'll give it a shot. First of all is this, to develop like an attitude or spirituality of receptivity. These humans are receptive beings. And so instead of seeing the world around us as material to be dominated, instead we receive it all as a gift. Creation is a gift. We receive it as a gift. We acknowledge our creatureliness. And we receive it as a gift from where? From God. We see it as manifesting his splendor, his glory. And our response is one of gratitude. A receptive nature. Receptive, contemplative. Being thankful for the gift. Which leads to overcoming the nihilistic technological worldview 
with what we'll call a sacramental worldview. Number two, we can begin to develop that sacramental worldview by seeing God revealing himself in the gift of creation, the gift of the body. We've got to learn to pay attention, though. We've got to learn to look and to notice. And when we do, to see the rhythms of the world, to see the order and structure of creation, to have reverence for the sacred, to have more wonder, that, that fascination we talked about yesterday. And a lot of this comes with, or comes to, a connection to nature, to the earth, to the rhythms of the cosmos around us. Some some of you, it may be, I love Father's talk so much, I'm moving out of New Orleans, and I'm I'm, I'm moving to the, the piney hills of northern Louisiana. The food won't be as good over there. And they got some really big ticks and bugs and stuff like that. You may do that, but you don't think you have to. Try to go and get in touch with the nature. I think mean people in Louisiana would love to get in touch with nature much more if it wasn't so hot and humid. There weren't alligators and, and bugs. Go to Washington State. The weather's nice in the summer. You go hiking, you do stuff like that. But we can still do it here living in the city. Even walking through Audubon in the morning. I love to do it. I do a little run around Audubon, and then I catch the fly, and I watch the sunrise over the Mississippi. Yeah, it didn't look like it was back in Tom Sawyer's day, but still, it's beautiful. Or go to City Park. Find some connection with nature. I know, it's not easy to do in the city. Here's a great connection. I just found out of it today. Over at Audubon Zoo, just started on Friday, this crazy new exotic bird exhibit. I love birds. Birds are little dinosaurs. There's 70 of these crazy exotic birds that came from all over the world. And you can go and walk amongst them. And the birds are flying around, and you can see toucans, and this one bird that looks like its heart is bleeding. I wonder if they have any birds of paradise. I don't know. Or you can simply walk around and start paying attention to buildings and to structures. It's a great book written about 10 years ago by a woman named Alexandra Horowitz called On Looking. And she got different people to walk around a block in downtown Manhattan. Some of them were good with rocks. Some were good with calligraphy and to notice the world around them. We can even sort of notice the beauty of this church and all the ways it was created. Look at those cool angels up there. So much stuff. And so as a result, we do that and we realize that the creation is a gift and we're connected with nature and we have more stewardship rather than domination, a greater care for the environment and the world around us. And then fourth, to work on creating what Pete Davis, who wrote that book dedicated, I mentioned, calls a counterculture of commitment. Instead of being washed away by the flood, we need to plant a forest. The forest stays and it's old and the trees and the roots run deep. We need to be that forest, grounded in a community, a neighborhood, a church, a place, and remain committed, not always browsing, not always moving around, learning to cultivate again, fostering relationships, fostering commitment. People who are willing, he says, to till the soil and wait with patience for these good things to rise up. So it's this cultivation of the land and the soil, 
of growing this new forest that leads us back to where we started. This idea of the connection between cultivation and the land and cult and worship and culture. Someone brought it up last night. Father, your talk on rest and leisure was great, but you didn't mention that seminal Catholic book, Leisure and the Basis of Culture. And I said, oh, I was going to. Could have done it yesterday. Granted, I'm not going to get into all of it. It's written right after World War II by the Jewish, not the Jewish, I'm sorry, the German philosopher, Catholic philosopher, Joseph Pieper. And and his, his basic thesis is, is that we have work where we're productive, But leisure is the the realm of non-work, not just sitting around watching television, but it is non-activity, stillness, contemplative, receptive of the world around us, to see God in creation and to see and celebrate it is something good. It's useless in the sense that it doesn't produce anything, but it is very useful in the sense that we can see and celebrate God. And as he goes through these different types of leisure, he says at the very bottom, the most important type of leisure is going to be worship. Cult. And he talks a lot about that word. That Peeper connects basically leisure and Sabbath with worship and cult. He says the most festive festival that can be celebrated is religious worship or cult. And there is no festival that does not get its life from such worship or does not actually derive its origins from this. So the best way that we can worship is through cult, is through religious worship, where we're cultivated, where we're connected to not so much the rhythms of the world, the rhythms of the church, the rhythms of worship. He continues, the deepest root then from which leisure draws its sustenance, and leisure implies the realm of everything that without being useful nevertheless belongs to a complete human existence, poetry, music, art, whatever. The deepest root of all this lies in worshipful celebration. Again, it doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Mass is boring. I don't, I don't have rejoicing, rejoicing when I come. But it means you've got to change your understanding of Sabbath and rest, and you've got to change your understanding of leisure. But you also have to understand place, rhythm, cosmos, seasons, connection. Because it's all ordered towards worship. Whatever we do not end up giving over to work and be consumed by economy goes to the Lord. To be in harmony with the world is what he talks about. So this is how I think what has to happen. One of the reasons that we do not understand worship and cult as Leisure as something that is joyful and life-giving is because we are not connected to the land of the church, to the seasons and the rhythms of the church's liturgical year. We're going to celebrate 
you know, President's Day and Veterans Day and all these different things like this. These are festivals that are social or political. But what about the liturgical season of the church? That's a season. We can be connected to it. We're in the middle right now, let's say, of like winter. It's Lent. It's a time of fasting and of penance. But what are we looking forward to? Easter. Time of celebration and rejoicing. Easter lasts eight days. You know, so does Christmas. These different festivals that we have that often will coincide with the worldly festivals. If actually you look at sort of the Jewish tradition, many of the Passover and these different festivals were the festival of the harvest, the festival of the new moon. They just basically took the rhythms of creation and, and sort of anointed them. And God took them into something and made them holy. And so as Catholics, we kind of do the same thing. But it's all connected to this deeper sacred rhythm. Even Mardi Gras is connected to Ash Wednesday. It's the festival where we learn to laugh and celebrate and have a good time. We, we don't need to do a lot of the things people do in the French Quarter on Mardi Gras. That's not what we're talking about. That's an excess. But what about the solemnities and the feasts? We used to love to do it. We had a big mass and celebration for the Feast of St. Therese. All the little things in different cultures that, that, that popped up to celebrate the different regional saints the ways that we celebrate Our Lady of Prompt Sucker here in New Orleans. And every Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection. Every Sunday is Easter. Why don't we celebrate this? This is the rhythm of the week. This is the rhythm of the year. We need to get back in touch with this, to cultivate it. Well, that means we've got to be grounded in a place, and that place is the church, and often our church parish, our community, the people we worship with. As we'll see tomorrow, that doesn't happen very often. We need to bring that back. And the heart of the worship is what? Sacrifice. Primitive cultures took something that belonged to them that was most precious and gave it back to the Lord. Now they got a little off because they thought that somehow they were, the primitive cultures were feeding the gods. But Yahweh said, no, 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 you're not feeding me. I don't need this. But the ultimate sacrifice is the mass. The sacrifice, the worship given to us in Christ especially on Sundays. The solution is indeed the land. It is the rhythms of the sacred liturgy, of the seasons of the church that most Catholics have no idea about, totally connect, disconnected from. But if we can get back into that, first of all, let's start keeping the Sabbath holy and learning true leisure, contemplation, relaxation, rest, worship, then if we can start living out the church's year. All Saints Day, let's have a party. Catholics love to party. We're party people. I, I, I go out places and I order a, a beer or a glass of wine and people look at me. I said, I am not a Baptist minister. I'm a Catholic priest. If Jesus wanted you to turn water, drink water, he wouldn't have turned it into wine. All right? Come on. This is celebration. This is what we're supposed to have. But we celebrate the wrong things because we're out of touch with the rhythms, with the cosmos, with that sacred reality that our home, the church, gives us. We need to be grounded in it. So, we've seen we're out of touch with the rest of the Sabbath, out of sync with the cosmic and religious rhythms. 
one last diagnosis that I think is really important we're going to look at tomorrow night. One last thing that we need to get into sync if indeed I think we have a chance of returning to proper worship and keeping that Sunday Mass in its proper place. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Come back tomorrow. So thank you for coming tonight. I hope I hope this kind of makes sense. As I was talking about it, I realized I got to change this, I got to change that. But overall, let's let's get back to celebrating life as a Catholic. Your pastor knows all about that. He likes to have a good time. He understands the rhythms of the church. So you're all thankful for that. So we'll close with the glory be. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. To the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit.